0: Well, good morning, Piney Ridge Church. I invite you to make your way back to your seats. I'm Pastor Steve, and it's my privilege to bring this message to you this morning. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, we are trusting in you and you alone this morning, for you alone can save. You alone can transform hearts and minds. And so, Lord, we ask you to do a mighty, miraculous work in our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that when we leave here this morning, we will love you more than we do right now, and that we will be more determined to live our lives for the glory of God. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Are you afraid to die? That's a question I asked my dad 31 years ago when he lay in a hospital bed for the last time. But it's a question I'm asking you today. Are you afraid to die? How does that question sit with you? Does it unsettle you, make you uncomfortable? I have to confess that for me it feels a little awkward to ask because death is not really a subject that We bring up in polite company in our culture, is it? Usually, people don't want to think about death. We shove it aside until we are forced to face it, either in our lives or in the lives of a loved one. But it's an important question that every person needs to ask and think about Are you afraid? To die. My prayer is that after listening to this message this morning, that you will have a a biblical foundation and understanding of our relationship to death to help you to evaluate your own heart. Now, many people will tell you that they are not afraid to die. And I think sometimes that's just a defense mechanism to that allows them to keep from thinking about it very deeply. A lot of Christians will tell you they're not afraid to die even though they really are because they think that's how Christians are supposed to respond to that question. But there are many people in the world who truly are not afraid to die. Some, like my dad, have a solid faith in God, and they have assurance that they are children of God, and they, have, and they know where they're going to spend eternity. Others are not afraid to die because they view death as merely a release from suffering. That's why, at least that's one reason why we have so much suicide and assisted suicide in our world. Still others are not afraid of death because they have a wrong and unbiblical view of the afterlife, perhaps not even believing that there is an afterlife. Or if they think there might be, they they think that all people, or at least those that are good people, will all go to heaven and become angels when they die. But listen, there are many people, and I suspect people here who are here today, who ought to be afraid to die. Whether we consciously recognize it or not, we all have the shadow of death lurking over our shoulder throughout our lives. And so I want to ask you to evaluate your own heart. How... how does that, how does the certainty of death affect the way you live? Today would be a great day to evaluate that based on our passage this morning. Because in our passage, we're going to see that because of this curse of death that we all live under because of sin, God stepped into the world took on human flesh for the purpose of defeating our biggest enemies and rescuing us from the bondage of the fear of death. The main theme of the passage, and what I want you to take away from the message today, is that through his death, Jesus stripped Satan of his power and rescued his children from their bondage to the fear of death. Jesus stripped Satan of his power and rescued his children from their bondage to the fear of death. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as I read today's passage, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, that is, God the Son, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You may be seated. So we're going to start this morning by looking at the first part of 14, where we'll see the human condition described. It says that the children share in flesh and blood. Now, the author picks up that word children from verse 13, the previous verse, referencing the children that God gave to Jesus. And he says that they share a common human reality. In this passage, while it is true that we do all share, for example, the fact that we're all In bodies, we all have physical bodies. In this passage, the emphasis is on the theme that we have a common condition that we will all die unless we're still living when Christ returns. The phrase dead man walking is applied to prisoners who are condemned to death because of their crimes. During the time between the pronouncement of their sentence and the execution of that sentence, they are considered dead men or dead women walking. They are still alive, but their death is imminent and assured. But in reality, we are all dead people walking. While for many of us our death may not be imminent, it is assured. As I said, unless we're alive when Christ returns. Oh, we're still alive, right? But our end is assured. In the covenant that God made with Adam, God told him that he could eat of every good thing in the garden, but he was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that he ate of that tree, he would surely die die Of course Adam permitted Satan to enter the garden didn't protect his wife Satan lied to Eve and told her that if she ate of the tree of the fruit from the forbidden tree that she would not surely die And by God's grace when they did sin and eat of the forbidden fruit Adam and Eve did not immediately drop dead But they were immediately under the sentence of death. They were a dead man and a dead woman walking. And so is every descendant of theirs that has been born since. But not only are we under the curse of physical death, we are also born spiritually dead. We are born dead in our trespasses and sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who's the devil, and we live according to the passions of our flesh and carry out the desires of our bodies and our minds. And without a miraculous act of God to save us, we are all destined for eternal death, eternal punishment, suffering under the wrath of God. This is the common reality that we all share, including the children whom God elected before creation and the world to, to call out and to give to Jesus. And it's because of this shared reality that God the Son came to earth to take on flesh. Verse 14 begins with the word since, which tells us that this first part, since, Verse 14a, then verse 14b. Since the children share in flesh and blood, God the Son partook of the same things. Now, I want to look at those two words, share, the children share in flesh and blood, and partook, God the Son partook of the same things. In the Greek, the words that are translated share and partook are synonyms. They mean the same thing. But their tenses are different. When it says that the children share in flesh and blood, that's a for all time thing. We've always been human. We always will be human. We didn't exist before we were born. On the other hand, God the Son did exist before Jesus was born. God the Son existed It's part of the Trinity And he partook of the same things. He became human. At one time he was not human, and now he is. That's the difference between those two words, share and partook. It's the tense. Jesus took on human flesh, suffering all the same physical weaknesses that we do. But Jesus didn't sin because he was truly God. God doesn't sin. And Jesus didn't inherit Adam's sin, and he wasn't under the same sentence of death. And yet, Jesus was truly man. He was born as a weak, helpless baby, just like us. He grew up the same as us. He thirsted like we do. He hungered like we do. He probably got colds in the flu like we do. He felt soreness in his muscles after a hard day of work like we do. And most importantly, while he wasn't under the sentence of death, because Jesus partook of flesh and blood, he was able to, to die he was able and did suffer the horrors of death just like us but instead of us death didn't come get him he laid his life down he gave his spirit up to the safekeeping of the father jesus partook of human flesh so that he could die in, in the place of his children absorbing the wrath of God that they deserve to secure for them a forgiveness for their sin and freedom from their bondage to sin. Jesus, as Jason said last week, came in solidarity with us so that he could die in our place. In this passage, the emphasis is on the fact that through his death, Jesus did two things. First, he defeated Satan. And second, he rescued his children from enslavement to the devil through fear of death. So let's look at the first of these two things in the last part of verse 14, following the word that. God the Son likewise partook of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. If you're trusting in Christ's death on your behalf for your salvation, then Jesus destroyed Satan by destroying the power the devil has over you because of your sin. We're enslaved, people are enslaved to the devil because of their sin. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our sin gave Satan power over us. He could accuse us night and day before the Father and demand our condemnation and our eternal punishment because of our sin. But if we're trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation, Jesus' death has removed our sin and replaced it with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and Satan can no longer accuse us and demand our eternal death. Look at Romans 8, verses 33 and 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Satan can do nothing to separate us from the love of God, and with Jesus Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king, at the right hand of the throne of grace, interceding for us, Satan cannot even get an audience with God to accuse us. Hebrews 2.14 says, Jesus became human so that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Well, what does that mean? That the devil has the power of death. Jesus affirms that. He says in John that, that he was a murderer from the beginning. And you don't have to read very far in the book of Job to see that that's true, right? Satan asked permission of God to test Job and immediately killed his kids and all of his servants, save a couple who were allowed to crawl back to Job and report the catastrophes. But God didn't permit him to kill Job. Satan has the power of death. He operates within the realm of death, but it's under the authority of God. And Satan also operates in the realm of death by tempting us to sin. That's how death entered the world in the first place. He tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and they did. And that brought death into the world. And he tempts us to sin. And we, when we capitulate to that, when we give in to it, it leads to death. However, Hebrews two fourteen says that by his own death Jesus destroyed him. Oh, he's still currently alive, and he's mad as a hornet, and he prowls around seeking souls to devour. But he remains firmly under the authority of God, like a dog on a leash. He can only go as far as God permits. And Jesus has rendered his death sentence. His demise is certain. He will be cast into the lake of fire. As I said on Good Friday, the devil is a dead demon walking. Jesus Christ took on flesh and blood so that through his death he could destroy the devil. And then verse 15 gives us the second reason that Jesus came. It says, Jesus took on human flesh so that through his death he could deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In defeating and defanging Satan, Jesus has freed his children from the fear of death. For the Christian, death should no longer be viewed as the end of life, but rather the gateway to a richer and a fuller and a more abundant and joy-filled life. Paul says that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's not to say that dying is pleasant for the Christian. Dying is the ultimate weakness. and We don't like to be weak. We were created not to die. We were created to be alive, for the glory of God. Death is the opposite of life. It is our enemy. It's, death is something to be lamented. Death is something to be angry about. B.B. Warfield, in commenting on John 11, which is the Lazarus chapter, where it says that Jesus was deeply moved at the tomb of Lazarus, He says that Jesus was filled with inextinguishable fury, that it seized upon him. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he had come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. Jesus was angry at death. Death is our enemy, and it's our punishment for sin. And the hours and days and weeks and months and years leading up to death may be torturous for us. However, we are called, we are called to walk through those days and years and months in faith. With patient endurance, calling on the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit that's at work in us to sustain us and to see us through. So we don't embrace death or long for death, but like Jesus on the cross, we are to endure it for the joy that is set before us. We're to face it with steadfast faith and hope in our inheritance. One more time, the theme of today's passage is through his death, Jesus stripped Satan of his power and rescued his children from their bondage to the fear of death. Let's look at some ways that this passage can intersect with our lives. First of all, use your time wisely for the glory of God. Psalm 90 considers the shortness of human life when compared to the the eternal existence of God. And in verse 12 of Psalm 90, the psalmist says, he's praying actually, he says, "'Teach us to number our days "'that we may get a heart of wisdom.'" Now, the phrase, your days are numbered, means you're probably going to die soon, right? But that's not what this is talking about. He's praying to God that we would learn to number our days, which I think he means that we need to take advantage of the time that we're given to honor and glorify God to grow in faith and disciple other believers and to share the gospel with those who don't yet believe and to be a blessing to the church and to the community in sacrificial service. Church, don't waste the time you've been given. Rather, redeem your time for the glory of God. Missionary C.T. Studd wrote this little couplet. Only one life, will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Secondly, persevere to the end of your lives. In our church's vision statement, we have this line, we strive to be a people who hold fast to the sound doctrines of the scriptures, until the end of our lives, dying with joy in the Lord. Dying with joy in the Lord. You'll often hear preachers, including the three of us, say that you need to live your lives in a manner worthy of the Lord. But living your life in a manner worthy of the Lord also means dying in a manner worthy of the Lord. Followers of Christ ought to face death boldly, filled with faith, enduring the suffering for the joy set before them. Listen, no matter what is happening to your physical bodies, if you're a follower of Christ, your future is secure. You don't have to be excited about dying. In fact, I would look at you funny if you were. But we should be excited and we should be hopeful and we should be joyful about what death brings to us as followers of the one who is the resurrection and the life. If our lives are hid with Christ on high, then we have nothing to fear in death. Absolutely nothing. Death is our enemy. But Jesus Christ, in conquering death and destroying the devil's power, has turned the tables on the devil. With Christ as our sovereign Savior, death no longer is the horrible monster waiting at the end of the book. In Christ death becomes our servant ushering us into a life that is full of joy forevermore i've often said that one of the lessons that my mom and dad one of the best lessons my mom and dad taught me in their lives was how to die well as a follower of christ with faith and confidence in the lord And their examples have inspired me to want to leave a similar legacy to my family and a similar legacy to my church. I want to die well in the Lord. And I pray that when my time comes that the Lord will be strong in my weakness and give me the inner strength and the courage and the confidence to die with joy and hope in the Lord. Because to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Third, don't grieve as the world grieves. Paul says in First Thessalonians that Christians should not grieve like those who have no hope. Now, how we grieve the passing of a loved one depends on our confidence in their faith that they have or don't have in Christ. But listen to me, when we grieve the death of one who is surely a saint of God, let us do so with joy, knowing that they are no longer shackled by the pain and suffering of this world and that they are in the presence of God. Does that mean we shouldn't cry? Does that mean it's wrong to grieve? Absolutely not. I miss my parents. There's a hole in my life where that, that they used to fill. I'm grateful to God for the impact that they had on my lives. And sometimes when I think about that impact, it makes me a little sad that they're gone. But listen, that grieving needs to be mingled with joy and praise for the grace of our loving God, the grace that He gave me parents like that with the grace that allowed them to impact my life the way they did. And praise for God, because he's the God of the living and not the God of the dead. Fourthly, don't fall in love with this life. For the Christian... Not fearing death goes hand in hand with not clinging to this life and loving this life more than we love God, more than we love that country of which we are citizens, that future citizenship that we have. Don't be so in love with this world that you you have trouble letting it go. Jesus said in John 12 that he who loves his life will lose it, but whoever hates this life will keep it for eternity. Hate being that comparative word, right? Not that, not that we should all go around saying, I hate my life. But that we love the life that we're going to have far more than the life we have now. If we think we have good things in our lives now, if you're a follower of Christ, you have no idea. Those are but four tastes of what you will experience. And listen, if you love Jesus, you will follow him on the road of suffering all the way to death. Following Jesus means taking up your cross, which is an instrument of torture. It means recognizing that your life is not your own, it was purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It means putting to death your sin. It means putting to death your self-glorifying desires. It means living a life of obedience to the Word of God. It means dying to yourself for the sake of others. And if it comes down to it, it means losing your life for the sake of the kingdom of God. We don't know what the future holds for Christians in the United States, but we all do know that there are places in the world now where to stand up for Christ is a death sentence. And that could come here someday. And don't be so in love with life in this world that you are tempted to deny Jesus Christ if that day comes. Jesus defeated Satan through his death on the cross, and we are to follow in his steps, listen to me, by defeating him as well. Satan has received the sentence of death, and he will be thrown into the lake of fire when Christ returns. But in the meantime, he is full of wrath, and he wants to kill the church. Revelation 12 tells us that Satan has been cast down to earth and he is livid about it. He can no longer stand before God and accuse Christians and he will do everything in his power to prevent them from trusting in faith in Jesus Christ. But Revelation 12, tells us that we will be victorious over him in Christ. And they those are the Christians, it says, have conquered him, that's Satan, and they have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, listen, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So brothers and sisters, don't fall in love with the life you have in this world. And don't be consumed by the things of this world. Pray that your affections will be stirred for the eternal life you have in Christ. And spend the time you have on this earth to store up treasure in heaven. And finally, some of you should fear death. It would be unloving for me to sugarcoat this, but if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and your salvation from the wrath of God, you should fear death. Teenagers, are you listening to me? Hebrews 9.27 tells us it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. No matter how good you believe you are compared to other people, you are not perfectly righteous. And that's the standard for admittance into the kingdom of heaven. And your only hope, your only hope, when you stand before the judgment of God to give an account for your life, is to hold fast by faith to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, saving you from the wrath of God. Otherwise, you will spend eternity suffering under the wrath of God. I plead with you. I beg you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Ask Him to save you. Ask Him for the faith to believe. And when others come up for communion in a moment, I'll ask you to stay where you are, and I encourage you to pray. But if you don't know how to pray, I'll be back in the back. Come back to me, and we'll talk, and we'll pray together. Or put it on a connection card and give it to me afterwards, and one of the pastors will call you this week. I'll tell you, well, there's nothing that would give us more joy than to visit with you and talk about the gospel. Or you can email us at prcpastors at pineyridgechurch.org. If you have already committed your lives to God through faith in Jesus Christ, and you've had that faith affirmed in a church by by, uh, baptism, then you're welcome, whether you're a member of Piney Ridge Church or not, to join us In communion, the way we take communion here is we exit our rows to the left. We come to one of the tables down here in the front. If you need gluten-free, that's on your far left. And take the elements of communion back to your seats and take it with the people around you, with your family, or by yourself in prayer. And here's what I encourage you to do, Christians, as you come to partake of the Lord's Supper. First of all, we're going to take the Lord's Supper all together, right? We're taking it in solidarity with one another in the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to be thankful to Jesus Christ as you eat the wafer that represents the body broken for you and the and drink the juice that represents the blood spilled for your sin. Give thanks to Jesus Christ who partook of flesh and blood on your behalf in solidarity with you so that he could die in your place. And then one last thing. As you take communion by faith this morning, ask God to fill you with wisdom to make the best use of your time that he's given you here on earth. Ask him for the strength to not live in the fear of death, but rather ask him to stir the affections of your heart that you might live with joy the abundant life that you've been given in Christ. When you're ready, you may come to the Lord's table.